Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. Today in our teaching, we'll be studying Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Thanks, May God Steve. bless the reading of this word. If you pray with me, Lord, I ask this morning um, that you would speak clearly uh, through me and Lord God, that um, our hearts are just humbled uh, before you and our attention is set on you and um, God, that, that you would speak uh, in, through your Holy Spirit into the many different situations in this room uh, with your conviction and with your encouragement and with your grace. And Lord, ultimately, that as a result of our time in the word this morning, God, that you um, would get more glory uh, through the people who gather here and watch online. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in a series called New Year, Same Truth, and we've been looking at several passages in the Gospel of Mark that are timeless truths. And we live in a day in which people are often looking for new truth, but the reality is that the truth of God's word uh, does not change. You know, we're all letting someone guide us, um, someone's influencing us, someone's giving us direction. And the question really is, who are you looking to for guidance? Who are you looking to for advice? Maybe it's parents um, and how they've helped shape you or continue to speak in your life. Maybe it's your spouse. Um, they're the person who really guides you and counsels you. Maybe it's some friends that you have had or you currently have. Maybe it's book, or a book you've read or books that you've read. And, and maybe there's just different aspects of our culture that are what shape you and what guide you. Different aspects of your life are being influenced by uh, who is influencing you. And one of the most significant areas of our life where this is true is when it comes to the uh, marriage, when it comes to our marriages. And there are a lot of opinions on marriage today. But I like something that Tim Keller says, or the way he says it. He says, in the Bible, you have teaching that has been tested by millions of people over centuries of time, and in multiple cultures, do we have any other resource on marriage like that? I'll say that again. In the Bible, you have teaching that has been tested by millions of people over centuries of time and in multiple cultures. Do we have any other resource on marriage like that? Now, a lot of people 
have said today or have the mindset today that biblical marriage is outdated and it is exclusive. But biblical marriage is not outdated and exclusive. It's timeless and people choose to exclude themselves from it. You see, when you get married, you've gotten into something that was invented by God. And if you determine to run your marriage your way, you're in for a lot of trouble. Because marriage doesn't belong to you, to you or me, it belongs to God. And God knows better. Now I used to get very excited about teaching on marriage. But I am not ever excited about teaching on marriage anymore. Because at the end of today, someone is going to email me. Someone is going to leave our church. Someone may even confront me this morning. And I just wanna give you some disclaimers about what we're talking about today. The first is this. I realize that situations are nuanced. You might say, you don't know everything about my situation. You're absolutely right. I do not know everything about your situation. I'm happy to meet with you. I'm happy to be one of a multitude of counselors in your life, but the reality is there's no way that I can address every situation this morning. I also wanna say that I'm not some perfect example of what a marriage should be, or I'm just on you know, level 10, and I'm saying you guys all do what I'm doing. And so part of the reason that I'm sitting down is because I wanna make that clear, that I am on the same level as you, I am in no way superior to you, and also, I don't intend to say these things with a harsh tone. Um, I kinda speak that way naturally anyway. Um, but I, I really do want you to hear above all things the grace and love of God for your life. But even though I don't like talking about this, it's in the word of God, we're going through the gospel of Mark, and that's where we are. And it's wrong that churches skip over this kind of stuff because it's incredibly important. And I would say that if we say we are passionate about Christ, if we say we are passionate about missions, then we'll be passionate about marriage because it is a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. So we're gonna walk through Mark 10, one through 12, which Dee read for us, and we'll see two main points as we do that. The first is this. God created marriage, people created divorce. God created marriage, people created divorce. The other is this, God gave us marriage so we and others would see his goodness. God gave us marriage so we and others would see his goodness. So let's walk through our passage and then come back to these points. In Mark chapter 10, verse one, it tells us that Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom of God. So when there was a crowd, this is often what he did. He began to teach on the kingdom of God. And when he did, the religious leaders usually wanted to steal the show. And so what they do here in verse two is something they would do often. The Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The Pharisees are the religious leaders. They're the religious elite. And their purpose with anyone who taught something that might challenge their way of doing things was to test them and to prove them wrong. And they had been doing this with Jesus. And so they asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Which means if a man divorces his wife, is that permissible by the law of God? Now their question is actually a little more targeted, a little more direct than we might think at first glance. And Matthew spells this out a little more clearly for the reader. 
In Matthew chapter 19, verse three, in his account of this, he says, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In the day of Jesus, there were two predominant schools of thought about divorce. One came from a rabbi named Shammai, and he believed that you can only get divorced if there was unchastity, which means if there was adultery. So if a woman committed adultery, her husband was permitted to divorce her. Then there was a guy named Hillel, another rabbi who was probably a little more liberal on this, and he said that if there was indecency found in her, that you could divorce um, her. At this time, marriage, divorce really only belonged to men. Now, Hillel, who said that you could divorce uh, for indecency, people began to kind of take that and run with it, and so there was a variety of acceptable reasons to divorce your wife. I mean, as far as it might be, she doesn't make the tea sweet enough, you can divorce her. They didn't have sweet tea back then, but you get the point. This is the context of their question. They wanna know which one of these ways of thinking is right. You see, this is actually more of a political debate than it is a desire to know what God's word says. Thank goodness that political debates don't get involved and mess up the church today. So they feel they've trapped Jesus. If he answers, you can only divorce your wife if she commits adultery, then he's gonna upset a whole bunch of people who have divorced or who want to divorce. And if he answers any indecency, then this conservative group is gonna get upset with him. And so either way, they've figured out they're gonna hurt Jesus's ministry. And I just wanna say this today, that. Some of you are gonna get mad at me for some of the things I'm saying, and, and maybe I don't say it the right way, and I get it, but the content of what I'm saying is you're not mad at me, you're mad at Jesus. And you really need to deal with that. Because I believe in the same way that you would email me or confront me about it, you would do the same with him and maybe leave his church. And so Mark tells us when they asked this question, he said, what did Moses command you? They ask, is it lawful? And he says, what does the law say? And they answer, verse four, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They're very familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 24 because Deuteronomy chapter 24 is actually the the springboard for a lot of what was being taught about divorce in this day. I wanna read Deuteronomy chapter 24 just so we have context of what they're asking. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse one through four. When, when Moses is giving the law, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. So here's what this instruction is. If a man divorces his wife, and in this case, he would have divorced her for indecency, and then she gets remarried, and this new husband divorces her as well, then she shouldn't go back and marry the first husband. The covenant has been broken, and she shouldn't go back. Now from this became all kinds of rules about divorce. But this wasn't even dealing with whether or not divorce 
period was acceptable. This was actually an instruction about a situation that was occurring in the time. And what Jesus does when the, the Pharisees ask him this question is he points them back to the reason that God gave them this law. Verse five, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. The reason that God is instructing the Israelites about this is because their hearts were already hard and they were already doing wrong things. And then he quotes Genesis chapter two, verse 24, which is a passage, an idea that most people are familiar with because even if you only make it a few days in your Bible reading plan, you get to Genesis chapter two. Probably have multiple times. And here's what he says, verse six through eight. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. From the beginning of creation, God made them. God created them and God made them and God made them for each other. It belongs to God. It was given or entrusted to man. It tells us that he made them male and female. Jesus himself says that. God creates marriage, one man, one woman. There's a big debate about this right now, even among Christians, because nobody reads the Bible. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, their jobs, their livelihood was often tied to their parents' prosperity. So typically, even to Jesus' day, they didn't physically actually leave the house. They would add a room onto the house. But what Jesus is saying is that when you get married, you are entering into this covenant relationship that trumps all other earthly relationships. And you should hold fast to your spouse. You should be joined together. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Their life lived for God is now lived together for God. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is covenantal language. God made a marriage covenant and he sealed the marriage covenant by the joining together of man and woman. It is a blood covenant and by his name. And the Pharisees want to know what is permissible by God. And Jesus points them to the purpose of God. A beautiful thing that we see in the gospels is that when Jesus taught things that were challenging to grasp in their context, the crowd might walk away saying, that isn't compatible with our religion. That isn't compatible with our truth. But the disciples realized Jesus was the truth. And they would talk about it more with him. And Mark tells us in verse 10 that they did that. In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. Now, they didn't fully embrace this because they came from a culture where the focus of religion had been on what can we get away with without God punishing us. And he said to them, verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. You see, the covenant gets broken when one of the marriage partners joins with another person. It's a blood covenant. You're joined together. Whenever someone commits adultery, they're joining with someone else. They are breaking that covenant. And when somebody gets divorced 
when there was not adultery and they then remarry and join together with that person, they are breaking the covenant. Matthew states this a little more clearly. Matthew 19, verse nine. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So if you're divorced for any other reason and you remarry, it's adultery. You're breaking the covenant. If you commit adultery, you're breaking the covenant. So the summary is I'm never gonna give you up, never gonna let you down, I'm never gonna run around and desert you. So as we walk through this, we see these two major points, and I wanna start walking through those two major points. The first that I already said, I'm gonna say it again, is God created marriage and people created divorce. God gave us marriage and it was our hardness of heart that led to divorce. Now here's something that needs to be made very clear because I think if you approach this legalistically, you miss the heart and you miss sin and you miss grace. The problem is not divorce. The problem is faithlessness. Divorce is not usually the problem, but the fruit of the problem. The problem is a life or lives that are self-centered and not God-centered. This is why Jesus redirects the question to what is God's desire for marriage? You're thinking about when is it okay to get out of this? And God says, what should you be getting out of this? What should you be giving to this? So how do we get to this place where someone is faithless, where divorce is being talked about? Well, a problem is that people go into marriage looking for someone to complete them or make them happy. And when that person quits doing that or gets difficult to live with, or they meet someone they think might do it better for them, they often begin to drift away and get divorced or find someone that they think will give them that and commit adultery, or they begin to stop seeing their spouse as a son and daughter of God created in his image, because practically speaking, they are the barrier to their happiness, and then they start treating them in a way that devalues who they are. You see, abuse, adultery, and divorce tell us a lie about God's love. Abuse, adultery, and divorce are a failure to honor God as the creator of your marriage and your life. Abuse, adultery, and divorce are a failure to honor God as the creator of your marriage and your life. When we get divorced because we're no longer happy or getting along, we tell the world that God's love is like that, that he loves us based on how sufficiently we meet his needs. When we commit adultery because we aren't satisfied with the one who we're with, we tell those around us that God's love is like that. And when we abuse our spouse, we convey that God is like that. The sin that runs through each of these situations is the failure to keep a commitment it is the breaking of an agreement or a contract or a promise, and it's a failure to honor God as the creator of your marriage and your life. John Witt Jr. says that we are moving away from permanent unions for the sake of mutual love and our procreation and protection in our society into a terminal sex contract designed for the gratification of individual parties. Your goal, my goal, should, not, should be God's glory, not self-gratification. The goal of our lives 
should be God's glory, not self-gratification. And so we view everything through that lens. So then we realize that God gave us marriage so we and others would see his goodness. God gave us marriage so that we and others would see his goodness. That is the purpose of all of our life as we talked about last week. So of course this is the purpose of our marriage relationship. And the Bible is explicit that this is the purpose of the marriage relationship, that the marriage is a picture of God's love for his people. Genesis 2 talks about that. The relationship that God has with the Israelites, referring to them as his bride, illustrates that. The book of Hosea illustrates that. The church is referred to the bride of Christ in Matthew. 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us this. Ephesians 5 talks about this and other places in scripture. You see, God saw that man was insufficient and so he created woman. It says that she's his helper, helpmeet. And the purpose of a man and a woman being joined together is that they would grow in sanctification. They would become more like Christ that they would have the strength and support to live the life that God has assigned them and called them to, and that they would multiply, that they would procreate so that God's kingdom would grow. The vision of marriage is that two people are working together to do what God has called them to do and be what God has called them to be. But you have chauvinists who say the woman should be behind the man. They, they think the idea of helper means treat her like a rental car. And I don't know if you've ever had a rental car and had insurance, but you're not too concerned with how she's doing or how it's going as long as it gets you where you need to get. And that's how a lot of men treat women. But then on the other hand, we have the feminist movement which says, no, the woman should be out front. Men have been out in front uh, too long, and so now it's our time. And the Bible says, no, we should be alongside one another. There's a huge debate amongst Christians today about complementarianism and egalitarianism. Complementarianism is this idea that God made men and women differently and they should work together in their different roles for God's purpose in their life. And egalitarianism is that they're equal and they, they can do all the same things. And what I don't understand, what I do not understand is how someone reads the Bible and can't realize men and women are different but of equal value. Equally important to God, equally important to the church. They're different. We can't deny that. We can twist science all we want, but we can't deny it. But at the same time, she is not any less of value than him and any less of value to the church than he is. I don't know why that's such a problem when you read God's word. I'll tell you why it is, though. Because we're not looking to God's word for this. We're looking to culture or we're reacting to culture or we're looking to bad examples in the church or we're reacting to bad examples in the church. The vision of God is that men and women would be working together, showing each other equal value for the purposes that he would have for them. But we are works in progress and I am convinced that no relationship will bring you face to face with your need to become more like Christ than your marriage. No relationship will bring you face to face with your need to become more like Christ than your marriage. Now, this is rarely what brings us into marriage. I, I, I have my you know, opportunity to be a part of a fair share of weddings and when I meet with the you know, groom-to-be and bride-to-be, I always say, why 
Are you marrying them? And I've never heard anyone say, you know, I'm marrying them because I look forward to the day when we come to a crossroads about a major issue where we majorly disagree to the point of tears and then we finally seek unity and we just grow through it. I've never heard anybody say that. I've never heard anybody say, I just can't wait till the stresses of life bring out the worst in us and our marriage reminds us of how short we fall of the glory of God. But this is what God does in marriage. You see, we like the idea that we have it together and marriage is a mirror of truth. Marriage is a mirror that reveals how much farther we have to go in applying the sermon that we are preaching if my wife were in here, she would probably say amen. Marriage is a mirror at showing us how much farther we have to go in actually doing the Bible study that we just read in our life or getting to where the couple ahead of us in life is. But listen, don't be mistaken. Marriage doesn't create your weaknesses. It reveals them. It shows you your weaknesses. Listen, maybe it's not so much that we are frustrated with our spouse, but that we don't like what we see in the mirror. Maybe it's not so much that we're frustrated with our spouse, but we don't like what we see in the mirror. And don't fight that. Don't run away from that. Embrace it. And don't deal with your frustrations with your spouse without first dealing with what you see in the mirror. Don't deal with your frustrations with your spouse without first dealing with what you see in the mirror. In the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve are created and they're naked and they're unashamed. And God's desire for you in marriage is to get naked, literally and figuratively. This is where, you guys don't know what to do with that right now. This is where <laughs> the power of marriage comes in. It takes abandonment and unity to get to this point. It takes humility to really embrace this. But God uses the nakedness. God uses the abandonment. This desire for his glory through you individually and together to shape you into who he wants you to be. You see, marriage is two terrible sinners desperately in need of the grace of God. I've asked many brides, can I say that to start off your wedding? And only one has ever said yes. But things start going wrong when we stop realizing that we are two terrible sinners in need of the grace of God and God wants his glory to be on display through these two terrible sinners. And so we often get to this place where we're not feeling it anymore in marriage. But I'm telling you, as J.D. Greer says, the problem is not that couples fall out of love. Couples don't fall out of love, they fall out of repentance. That's what leads to divorce. Because I'm in a stage of life where we have children from three to 13 and it smells in our house at 13 and three and all that for different reasons. And so you don't feel it every day, but people have made it years and years without feeling it every day. But when we stop to be repentant, that's when we start to run into problems. Now, I love what Matthew tells us that the disciples say, Matthew chapter 19, verse 10. It says, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. They're like, well, shoot, <laughs> we might as well not get married if this is what it's gonna be like. And if we gotta stay with this person, you want us to stay with this person even if. And he said to them, not everyone can receive the saying, but only to those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Jesus is saying, hey, there are people who are born eunuchs. That means they're not able to procreate, and so they end up being single. In their culture, that would almost be a certainty. Unfortunately, in that day, there were wicked men who made people into eunuchs for their kingdom so that they couldn't procreate. And he says some, you know, they don't make themselves into eunuchs physically, but they feel the call to serve God, and so they become like eunuchs. And, you know, I feel like this is where I I need to get into advice to those who are not in a Christ-centered marriage. Because a lot of what we're talking about is if the two of you are seeking God together, you know, what you should be striving for. But that's not everyone in this room or watching online this morning. And so I'll start with who this text is dealing with, those who are called to be single. And I'll say this, if God calls you to be single, he calls you to use that freedom to serve others. If God is calling you to be single, he's calling you to use that freedom to serve others. If from the Bible and from church history, if God calls you to be single, then there's a good chance he's calling you to be a martyr. You see, the purpose of being single is the same as the purpose of marriage, not for your self-gratification, for God's glory. And so if you're single, you say, how can I serve God more with my freedom? If God's calling you for that, go for it. Serve him, live for his glory. But if you are single and you want to get married, marry someone who hears and obeys God. People's criteria for getting married is typically, hey, as long as we make sure to mention God at the wedding and say his name, the marriage is gonna be okay. But I've heard God's name thrown around on athletic fields and construction sites a lot of times without any desire to honor him. Saying his name doesn't mean anything if we don't desire to honor him. And I just, you know, we talk a lot about consumer Christianity and nominal Christianity, and I think We think that the worst problem of consumer Christianity and nominal Christianity is that the pastor gets frustrated that people don't attend and serve and give. The greatest problem with consumer Christianity is that people are entering into marriage relationships with people who really don't love the Lord, but say they do. You cannot rush into this. You need counsel. You need to make sure that this person loves the Lord. But I realize today that not everyone heard that when they were single. Not everyone listened to that when they were single. And I would say this, if you're married today to a non-believer, know that you can be a clear picture of the unconditional love of Christ. The Bible does not say here or elsewhere that if you're married to an unbeliever, you should get out. Some believers in Corinth actually drew that conclusion and Paul wrote to them to tell them not to pull out of marriage. You see, in their context in in Corinth, many people were coming to faith in Christ and their spouse had not yet come to faith in Christ and it was a source of tension. To be a Christian was countercultural. And it was honestly probably more difficult for the women in their day. And so here's what Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. You're welcome to turn there, but it'll be on the screen. 1 Corinthians seven, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, They are holy. Now, he says unbelieving people will be made holy. To suggest that this means that they'll be made holy or be saved because they're married to a believer would neglect numerous scriptures that teach that we each stand before God. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying your marriage to this unbelieving man, this unbelieving woman could be the practical reason that your spouse comes to faith in God. And I have seen this over and over and over. He says, otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Your marriage, as imperfect as it may be, is creating an environment for your children in which they are seeing the clearest picture of God's love for us. 
in marriage. And you might think, well, mine isn't two people trying to do God's will. We should strive for that. But honestly, one faithful spouse who unconditionally, sacrificially loves a spouse who isn't pouring that out might be the clearest picture of the gospel that your children ever see. And if you leave your spouse, they see a Christian giving up on someone. See, your faithfulness to an unbelieving spouse is the best way for them, your children and others, to see the love of Christ. I think you choose to look at your situation in one of two ways. It's either an obstacle to my happiness or God can use this to show his goodness and his love. See, we often think this is getting in the way of God's will for me, but mixed in there is this idea that it's getting in the way of what I want to be God's will for me. And I need to say this, and hear me, I love you. And I'm here for you, we're here for you. But if you married a non-believer and you were a Christian and their faith didn't matter to you as much as their body or their ability to provide or the fact that they were charming, I think some healing takes place when you recognize that and you recognize where God has you and what this person needs to see through you. Now, sometimes if you're married to a non-Christian, they want out. And you as a Christian, you don't wanna get divorced and you have hope, but you gotta let them go. Paul goes on to say, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. If they wanna leave, let them go. You see, they don't give a rip about what God thinks about divorce. Don't try and obligate them to something that they're not living for. God has called you to peace. Now you might say, well, they're actually a Christian and they wanna divorce me. Well, what do I do? Well, Matthew 18 says you go to them about it and if that doesn't work, you go to them with some others and if that doesn't work, you go to them with the church, the church leadership. And then that says if they're not listening to God's word, you gotta treat them like a non-believer. This doesn't mean you give up on them, you stop praying for them. It doesn't even marry, mean you get remarried. I know many people who that's their situation and they remain hopeful that their ex-husband or wife would be repentant. But what we need to realize in all this is that the people who are closest to you When they hurt you, that's the greatest source of your pain. But at the same time, the people who are closest to you are your greatest opportunities to show God's love. Paul says, for how do you know, verse 16, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the goal. This is the reason for staying or letting them go. And if it isn't the motivation, I don't think you've grasped the gospel and the purpose of your life. I realize that in this room, watching me this morning online that there are people who are divorced. Some of you, there was adultery. Look, while there's certainly a case based on the book of Hosea to remain faithful, if that's the case, they broke the covenant and you got counsel and you prayed about it and you divorced, it's behind you. In some cases, it was just really bad. It was really bad. And while I think my encouragement to you would be, if you came to me and you just were miserable, to stick it out, the reality is, I don't know what I would do in your situation. And I can't judge you. And again, you're welcome to come and talk to me about it if you want to, but you don't need my validation. 
if you've settled your past with God and you've been open about your mistakes with God, then you need to walk in his grace. Now, I, I would also say that there's abuse that happens. And, 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 you know, in Matthew 8, we just live in a society that's different than what the New Testament was. In the New Testament, in the early church, churches were smaller and people looked to the, the church-controlled marriage, right? Like, people get in debate about who should be legally married and what. The marriage doesn't belong to the U.S. government anyway, so I don't even de- engage in those debates, just so you know. The church is stewarding the, the gifts of God. And so back in that day, and there's actually some, something written about this in the early church manual, if a man were to abuse his wife, the pastors were given the instructions to go to him and deal with him in his sin and carry with you two stout brethren. Because you don't let that happen in the church and you don't tell a woman to stick through that. You deal with it and you walk with them until he really truly is repentant and there is fruit. And nobody should be guilted into being in that situation and the church should be more involved. So the point of all this, look, the question that these guys are asking is, what's permissible by God? What can we get away with? What are we gonna get punished by? And the point of Jesus is the purpose of God. So, so I would say, if your marriage is over, then you should examine how you ended up where you are before you make your next move. So how did I end up here? Was it that I didn't marry someone who loves God? You know, and, and am I saying don't remarry if you're divorced for any other reason than adultery? I probably would say until they remarry, until they break the covenant, yes. And, I, and I'll tell you this, people who don't do this end up right there again so much. Who don't look at their situation and ask, how did I end up here? And then a lot of people, the second time around is good, and they're like, yeah, it's because of this person. No, it's because you chose this time to marry someone that you should marry, and you let God work on you. But here's what I want you to hear above all things about this. Romans 5.20 says, this statement of truth about our sin doesn't nullify the grace and forgiveness of God. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So if you've sinned and that's where you are and you are repentant and you are leaning to God, then walk in his grace and the freedom of that and say, God, here I am. Here's where I am. Use me for your glory. And in our weakness, he is made strong. Last verse here and and, and then we'll start wrapping up. Verse 17, 1 Corinthians 7. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Paul says, lead the life that the Lord has assigned to you means we're divided into different parts, different assignments. You see, the calling to be a preacher or a missionary as a means of putting food on the table is not the only assignment God gives, as if we're some superior people who hear from God in a special way. Every single one of us are given an assignment according to the sovereignty of God. And in that, life is not always ideal. But God has called us to be content, And it's okay that we want God to work and it's okay that we want God to change our situation, but we must remain faithful no matter what our circumstances are. And in the midst of all the things that we're being taught about what to do, people in Corinth were saying, hey, I need to turn my marital status upside down because they had a misconception about the gospel and about the Christian life. And Paul said, the goal is that you're faithful to God. And I would say this to you, do not let the ideal become an idol. Do not let the ideal become an idol. The temptation, whether we say it out loud or not, is this. Okay, 
In my current situation, there's no way I can please God, so I need to change it so I can get a better deal in order to please God. And I think Paul got the fact that many of these Corinthians wanted to make this change for the sake of the gospel. They probably had good intentions, some of them. And Paul says, remember, it's not going to make you any more pleasing to God. And we're not called to the ideal, we're called to obey God. And the American church has done a terrible job at this. Done a terrible job at this. At the reality that so many people are not in these picture-perfect Western American church marriages. And, and, And so many people who are not feel like they don't fit in in the church. And the reality is we need to equip people to be faithful to Christ regardless if their spouse ever loves God or regardless if they made mistakes in their life. Reject the temptation here to think we deserve something better than we have right now. Do you know how real that temptation is among married couples to say, I don't have an ideal marriage and then to say, so I don't deserve this? The gospel is better than this. Jesus ought to get more from me. I'm entitled to a different marriage or to be free again or not be single And that temptation drives more Christians, couples, to pursue divorce than just about anything. And more Christians to rush into marriage than just about anything. It's a feeling of entitlement. And we need to be less concerned with being in the positions we wanna be in and more concerned with being on mission to reflect God's glory wherever we are. God designed marriage and he needs to be in charge. I have a friend who's in his 80s, and uh, he was an executive with Pratt Whitney, and he oversaw hundreds of engineers. And he was telling me one time that a major part of his job was coordinating with the government and businesses when they needed to meet with the team who designed something, you know, that they use on one of their planes. So they would get to this point where the only solution they had, the government or these contractors, were to go back to the ones who designed it to see how it was supposed to run and then work through their problems from there. Today there is one who has designed marriage. He's designed you. And you keep trying to make adjustments, but at this point the only solution is to go back to the one who made it, the one who designed it. And here's the thing you need to understand. My friend made a lot of money and made a lot of money for his company because they would pay him a lot of money to consult them. It was worth it to them. But imagine if you had this product and you actually never paid for this product. So basically you'd stolen it, and you didn't fully know how to use it. And now, you call to get the designer's help, because that's your only hope, and you owe them a ton of money, and you have no means to pay for this. This is us and God. We've essentially taken our lives, which he designed, our marriage, which he designed, without giving him what we owe him, our life, and then we come back and we say, we need your help. How arrogant is that? Even if we're sad, it's arrogant. And now, what we must realize is not only do we need his help, but we owe him. And it's more than a few million dollars for a plane engine. We owe him holiness. But what God says to us is that we are in the same boat as everyone and that he never runs out of resources and he's designed our marriage and he's designed our life and he's designed our everything and he has paid the debt that we owe on the cross and he invites us to a relationship with him solely because he is good. You see, what should motivate us and captivate us more than anything about this is even with our unfaithfulness, 
Jesus never leaves his bride. Even with our unfaithfulness, Jesus never leaves his bride. And no matter where you're at and what circumstance you're in, you have to think of God's faithfulness to you. This is the central thing, according to the Bible, this is the central thing about our lives, and it must become the lens through which we view everyone, not to mention our spouse. And again, I know there's nuanced situations, but I hear a lot of couples who say we got divorced because we have irreconcilable differences. And Christy and I will tell you, we have all kinds of irreconcilable differences. And so did Jesus with me. But he loved me anyway, and through his persistent grace and love, he changed my heart and he reconciled my sin on the cross, and now I get a chance to demonstrate that to everyone I know. May we live in that. Let's pray together. Lord God, I pray that all of us would evaluate where we're at and we would repent where we need to repent. If we are not trusting in you in any way, God, just show us. And Lord, in our difficulties, may we remember that our relationship with you is not a 50-50 deal. We're with you 100% because of your love. And we're flawed and we fail. But may that kind of love for us fuel us to love people, not based on what they give us or how they meet our needs, but based on who they are, according to the creator. And Lord, I know that there's people in here who are just, they're struggling. Maybe they're in a marriage that's falling apart. Lord, even when we don't feel it, you're working. And I pray that they would draw close to you. And Lord, I just pray that people who have made mistakes in their past, God, they've dealt with it and they would just walk in your grace. And Lord, I just pray that for all of us today, that your grace would abound in our lives. Because more than anything, that's what you want to be here, to be clear. Not what is the law, but what is the love of God in Christ Jesus. So may we meditate on that now as we respond in worship. Pray these things in the saving, gracious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.